Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food. And eating it. And now we're on a mission to record and share interesting food stories from people all over the UK and beyond. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. Welcome to At The Source. We're recording today's food story at our favourite food festival, Abergavenny. And our guest is fermentation revivalist Sandor Katz, or quite rightly, Sandor Kraut. Sandor has been hooked on fermented foods since making his first batch of sauerkraut, and since 2003 has been sharing his knowledge and skills around the world, starting with his book Wild Fermentation. The New York Times called him one of the unlikely rock stars of the American food scene, and his 2012 book The Art of Fermentation received a James Beard Award. As if that's not enough, he's also been a finalist at the International Association of Culinary Professionals Awards. Thank you for joining us today, Sandor, and kind of taking time out of your busy schedule here at Awagaveni to talk to us. Um, welcome to our very glamorous campervan studio. It is glamorous. You've brought your own beer, you've brought some kimchi, <laughs> got some books. I'm pretty happy right now. Okay, so we, we start our podcast with the same question for everybody, which is, um, what is your first memory of food? <sighs> I mean, that's, that's a hard one. You know, it's funny because, you know, memory is so, um, um, you know, sort of tainted by, um, you know, by, by, um, recollection Mm. and, you know, repetition of stories. Mm. But, um, I mean, as a kid, I loved pickles and that has something to do with how I ended up, um, um, you know, doing this, uh, fermentation revival work, but, I mean, I just was crazy about pickles when I was a kid, and I, I can't really think of anything specific earlier than that that I loved. I, I will say I always loved eating everything. I always loved putting things in my mouth. When I was a very small child, I was taken on two different occasions to the hospital to have my uh, stomach pumped because oh I goodness. ate uh, a bottle of baby aspirin at one one, one time and a and a tube of um, like diaper rash ointment on another oh. occasion. That's a terrible first food memory. <laughs> that might be the worst food, first food memory we've ever had. Can you remember the taste of the of the ointment? No. Well, that's squeezing the tube into your mouth like but days. i do know after the second one they 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 sent a child welfare officer to oh. to our home to you know make sure i wasn't being neglected but you know i just i don't know i was very like orally fixated and loved to like put things in my mouth what can i say you were destined for a career in food right <laughs> from the other way in that case what is your first memory of fermented food well definitely pickles Definitely pickles. I mean, I didn't know that it was fermented. I wasn't thinking about fermentation, but like I just was crazy about pickles and, um, you know, just, just always sought them out. What were you eating the pickles with? Were you just sitting there with a jar like you are right now with the kimchi? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, That's just, the best just... way to do it. Gherkins, pickled onions. And, mm. you know, I don't know that my parents did that with me, but like, you know, I have watched my brother and my sister, like, you know, when they're, when their kids were small, um, um, you know, basically using pickles as like a teething device for their for their small children. Huh. Um, so you know they would just like you know walk around. You know they couldn't quite chew it because they didn't have the teeth, but just you know sort of gnawing on, sucking on delicious pickles. And you know as a result, the kids in my family like always love the flavor of lactic acid. If I ever have a baby, I'm definitely <laughs> trying that one. <laughs> Right, so for our listeners, and actually for me, because 
Alex is the fermentation person in this of the two of us of a very low level <laughs> well nothing compared to the man who's written all these books but can you give us I guess the idiot's guide the really quick idiot's guide to fermentation and why it's important okay I mean you know it's not I don't, I don't consider it like an, an, an idiot's question um, you know we live in a time when um, um, you know food is something we just see at the supermarket and you know most people don't have a clear idea of um, you know how the processes by which uh, 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 the foods that they love to eat are, are, are created an incredibly broad range of foods and beverages are produced by by fermentation um, uh, you know this would include um, bread, cheese, cured meats, uh, condiments, um, coffee, chocolate, vanilla, obviously beer, wine, uh, uh, so sauerkraut, kimchi. So the dark chocolate that we know and love, that's fermented. Yeah, I mean, it's all, yeah, I mean, it doesn't happen here. It happens at the, um, you know, it happens where it's grown. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, cacao is a, is a fruit. And the cacao beans, which are processed into chocolate, um, are encased in a sweet, pulpy fruit. And, uh, you know, just part of the way it's processed is that that fruit is, that, that, that the, the, the pulp with the seeds is removed from their casings and then just allowed to spontaneously ferment. Um, uh, and that, that, you know, partially develops the biochemistry of the beans that gives us the flavor that we, that we love. Um, uh, but it also breaks down the pulp and makes it uh, easy to remove the beans from the pulp. Okay, you've heard it here first. Chocolate is fermented, therefore it's good for your gut. Well, I mean, you know, chocolate also is, uh, you know, chocolate goes through some heavy processing and is, is often... Um, uh, 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 is often heated in the course of that. So, I mean, anything, I mean, you know, I'm not, I, I don't mean to say, I mean, coffee is fermented in a very similar way, um, you know, but then there's always, you know, hot water that, that, that goes over it and it's also roasted. I mean, it's not that everything fermented is intrinsically good for your bread. If you want, for your gut, if you want to eat, um, you know, sourdough dough raw, that's teeming with probiotic bacteria. But if you want to bake it into a loaf of bread, the, the high temperatures of the oven kills those bacteria. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of like distinctions among different kinds of fermented foods, but what they all have in common is that they are created um, um, in some way by the uh, transformative action of microorganisms. So carrots. A girl can dream. Chocolate isn't really good for your gut. <laughs> a girl can dream. Sadly. <laughs> So I want to know how you got into this career because you are a, a fermentation revivalist. That's your, that's what you do. I made up the job that's title. A, you yeah. made up your own job. So <laughs> how, how did this become your job? Well, okay. So, I mean, as a kid, I loved pickles. I wasn't thinking about fermentation, but I was very drawn to the flavor of lactic acid. Uh, later on, when I was in my mid-twenties, uh, for a couple of years, I followed a macrobiotic diet, and macrobiotics places uh, an emphasis on the digestive benefit of pickles and other live ferments. And I started noticing uh, during that period of time that these pickles that I had always loved then when I would eat them, like I would feel my salivary glands under my tongue squirting out saliva, and I began to associate them with getting my digestive juices flowing. Um, and I started really sort of intentionally, you know, sort of eating them pretty frequently. But 
you know, as a, as a health practice, but, but I wasn't making them myself. The, the change in my life that, um, you know, made me decide to investigate and start learning how to, uh, ferment things myself is that, uh, in 1993, I moved from New York City, which was where I was born and raised to rural Tennessee. And I got involved in gardening. And I was such a naive city kid, I had really never thought about the idea that in a garden, all of the cabbage is ready at about the same time, and, and all the radishes are ready at about the same time. And so the first year that I was gardening, and, you know, we had a we had a nice crop of cabbages, and, you know, I, I, I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do with all these cabbages? And I decided I should learn how to make sauerkraut. I, I looked in this sort of... Um, you know, popular general cookbook we have in the U.S., The Joy of Cooking. Uh, and I found a recipe in The Joy of Cooking for making sauerkraut. I couldn't believe how simple it was. Um, uh, it was incredibly delicious that, you know, right away I, I started playing around with different vegetables. Like, okay, if I can do that with the cabbage, what other vegetables can I do this with? And, yeah, you know, um, uh, I started playing around with making yogurt. I learned how to make simple country wines. Um, uh, I started a sourdough starter. I learned how to make bread with a sourdough. And, you know, it it just sort of, um, it just opened up this whole world. And I started to, you know, realize that there were fermentation traditions uh, in different parts of the world. I, um, I learned how to make miso. I learned how to make tempeh. I started playing around with cheese making. But, you know, I really, I, I, I went down the rabbit hole and I just, you know, it was sort of a personal obsession. Um, you know, I was always showing up at friends' houses and, you know, potluck dinners uh, with, um, with, with my fermentation experiments. And, you know, friends would tease me. I picked up this nickname of Sandor Kraut. And then some friends who were organizing this food skill sharing event invited me to teach a sauerkraut making workshop. And uh, uh, that was in 1998. And that was my first experience ever teaching about fermentation. Uh, and that was an, and, and I loved doing that. That was really interesting. I learned that many people are afraid of the idea of cultivating bacteria in jars and project all their anxiety about bacteria onto the idea of fermentation. And it was interesting to me to try to demystify it for people. Um, and this was just a once a year event for three years. And then, and then one summer I just had a conflict and I wasn't able to, um, uh, be part of this event. And I felt really sad about that. And I decided to write down my fermentation recipes in a little, a little book and our booklet, I, you know, a zine, I, I, I called it wild fermentation with a different subtitle. I, I called it a do it yourself guide to cultural manipulation. And, um, uh, then, uh, well, you know, because we, you know, where the, the word culture has these multiple connotations, mm. but we, we talk about like, you know, the bacteria you add into milk to make yogurt as cultures. Mm. And so, you know, wor- ah. working with fermentation is, you know, is working with food cultures. Um, um, and so that's the sense. Really nicely, actually, yeah. Yeah, uh, on both levels. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, as soon as, as soon as I self-published that zine, I mean, I, I spent a month working on it. It was fun. I had always fancied myself a writer, but like many young writers, I didn't really know what to write about. And then suddenly, I suddenly was like, wow, this is interesting. I wonder if I could actually write a book about this. And so, you know, I started doing some, I went to start going to the library and doing some reading and reading about, uh, you know, the history of microbiology, the history of fermentation, started looking into different kinds 
kinds of fermented foods. I made a little, you know, outline of what a book would look like. On the basis of that and the zine I had already written, I found a publisher, Chelsea Green. And, um, you know, then I was on my way and I, and I wrote a book. And then, you know, I wanted to promote the book and organize a kind of ambitious book tour. And then... Um, the book tour never quite ended, and um, <laughs> you know, I started getting invited to teach in different places, and uh, continue doing that now. Actually, we were talking to one of the people who've previously been on the podcast, and she actually was one of your students in Edinburgh quite a few years Ten ago. Ten years ago, she yeah. said. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, yeah, I yeah. remember that trip to Edinburgh. That was that, that that was fun. That was really my only time teaching in in uh, in Scotland so far. But I, I mean, I've been in different parts of the UK many times since then. And actually, um, from your Instagram, you've you've travelled the world with this, haven't mm-hmm. you? Um, I think some of the some of the things that I've really enjoyed seeing are are I guess here in in Western society things that challenge people's perceptions of what fermented food is and can be. Um, I think at the moment in the UK there's this kind of kimchi and sauerkraut thing, and and kombucha is very popular at the moment. But you've got things like potato tempeh, uh, vegetable garum, um, and kind of all of the Asian fermented bean paste and shrimp paste. So what is the most unusual? Well, I mean, let me me just say that, I mean, in every part of the world, people ferment. I mean, I, I don't possess encyclopedic knowledge, but like I cannot find any examples of culinary traditions that do not incorporate fermentation. And, um, you know, my idea about why it's practiced uh, uh, everywhere is sort of the inevitability of microbial transformation of our food. And, you know, what microbiology has illuminated for us uh, uh, is that, you know, all of the plants and animal products that make up our food are populated by microorganisms. So they're there is sort of this inevitability to uh, uh, microbial transformations. Now, now, what was the question like? The weirdest or the the most unusual thing that you've either fermented yourself or that you've tried on your travels? Well, I mean, the thing, the thing, to me is that. I mean, anything we could possibly eat can be fermented. Like there, there's, there's just conceptually, there's, just, there's nothing we could possibly eat that could not be fermented. Like, um, um, you know, any kind of grain, any kind of pulse, any kind of nut, obviously milk, um, uh, honey, um, um, you know, different kinds of meats. I mean, there's nothing that can't be fermented. So, I mean, I really am never surprised. Um, I mean, I've heard of some ferments. I mean, just, just, uh, uh, last weekend, I, um, you know, had this wonderful, wonderful interaction with this, uh, woman from Greenland, uh, uh, who was I at this, this who, who, who was at, who, who was at this event. And, you know, she was telling me about, and, and she's a microbiologist and she's gotten interested in sort of exploring the microbiology of different, um, you know, indigenous ferments of Greenland. But, you know, in the far Northern reaches of the world, um, you know, human habitation would have been utterly impossible without, uh, uh fermentation and some of the sort of fermentation methods of, of, of preserving, you know, particularly uh, uh, fish, marine mammals, and in this case, birds. And she was telling me about this food they have in Greenland called kiviak, uh, which is basically small ox, these little birds, um, uh, and, and then they, they slaughter a seal and um, um, remove the innards from the seal, stuff the seal with ox, sew it up, 
and bury it in the in the summertime when the waterways are accessible, and then in the winter when when um, uh, you know they don't have any accessible food resources, they dig it up and and they eat it. Now, to most Western people, you know that sounds really scary. You know, I, I haven't had the opportunity to um, uh, 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 to try it, but you know the fermentation traditions everywhere are you know, with the food resources that are abundant in those environments. Mm. So, you know, if you're, if you're, um, uh, you know, somewhere where, um, you know, soybeans are an abundant crop, then you ferment soybeans. If you're somewhere where uh, uh, wheat is an abundant crop, then you ferment wheat. If you're somewhere where there's a history of, you know, grazing ruminant animals for their milk, then you ferment milk. Um, but, you know, the things that people ferment are whatever food resources are, are abundant to them so um you know i mean i've definitely tasted some you know some some strong flavored things um uh, i think cheese illustrates this really well so like you know probably most people listening to your to your podcast some of them are vegan maybe some of them are um uh lactose intolerant and avoid uh, uh, uh cheese but probably most people you know have experience eating cheese in their life and, um, you know, like some sort of cheese, but probably most people, um, uh, have encountered some cheeses that were just like too strong for them that were like off putting because of their, their, their strong, um, uh, uh, smells or flavors. And, you know, fermentation cr can create strong flavors. Not everybody loves every flavor of fermentation. There's a high degree of cultural subjectivity to, you know, what smells and flavors people find acceptable. But I mean, I just, I, I don't, I don't get surprised by it. And I always challenge myself to try even things that, um, you know, are not, um, you know, obvious to me in terms of their appeal. So I guess another version of that question is what have been the most challenging things that you've, <laughs> you've fermented things that you've gone, I'm, I'm not feeling this at the moment, but I'm going to try it and either being pleasantly surprised at yeah, how it sure, tastes sure, sure. or been horrified at what it tastes like? Um, about 10 years ago, I came to a conference uh, uh, in the UK. It was the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery, and I, I was presenting a paper there, um, and the theme that year was fermentation. Uh, there was a, an academic from Sweden who uh, had brought all this uh, surströmming. Surströmming is uh, basically herring, uh, um, uh, in a low salt, uh, uh, brine that's fermented. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a traditional food in, in Sweden. At this point, it's really, I, I'd say like a ritualistic food rather than a sort of, you know, important survival food as it mm. was at some point in, in the past. Um, they moved the tasting outside because they realized that the, you know, strong smell of sewer strumming would, would just completely take over the building, uh, uh, and probably linger there for days. So they sort of, you know, they, they moved it outside and, you know, I was with all these other, you know, sort of, food obsessed people, food adventurers. And, um, you know, we could smell the very, very strong and strange smell of it. And I was wondering whether I was going to be able to, um, you know, actually, actually eat it. And, um, I mean, like the first bite was a little bit challenging, mm -hmm. but I have to say, like, once I swallowed that first bite, there was such a, like, nice aftertaste in my mouth uh, um you know i i really like relished the rest of it and then i sort of stuck around to see if i could have another taste and <laughs> um and now i've had it you know a half a dozen times uh, uh uh since then um so that wasn't at all obvious um uh, uh japanese natto 
which is uh, yes. Japanese uh, fermented soybean. Oh, and that's um, quite um, like it, stringy. Yeah, there. yeah. It develops like that. a mucilaginous coating on on the beans, and it's an example of an alkaline ferment, which has a little bit of an ammonia smell. You know, not unlike a ripe brie cheese or yeah. or, or something like that. And uh, I mean, my first taste of natto, I like, I didn't like it at all. Um, uh, but then, you know, I had pe people encourage me through the years to give natto another try. And I would say at this point, like, I crave natto. It's like, it's really, really delicious. But I mean, a lot of flavors are, 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 um, uh, they grow on you. They're, they're acquired tastes. Like, I don't know anyone who liked beer the first time they tasted That's it. I don't, very good I don't know anyone who liked coffee the first time they tasted it. And, you know, but somehow, like, we watch people taking pleasure in these foods. We watch our parents and, um, um, you know, whoever taking pleasure in them. And so we decide to give them another, another try. And then, you know, some of us end up liking it. Some of us end up not liking it. Um, but, you know, I, I, at this point, always challenge myself to, um, you know, give things that are not obvious to me uh, in their appeal another another try. I think maybe I need to... I tried natto in Japan earlier this year. It's It was traditionally eaten at breakfast, right? So we yeah. had it with... Um, I feel like we had it with sardines, maybe, mm. and rice. For me, the, the flavour was fine, but I could not get past mm. that texture. Um, and I think a lot of people are texturally eaters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess that that's also something that bothers people with um, a lot of other fermented things that maybe the, the texture of kind of being slightly slimier, perhaps, can mm. put them off. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, you know, think, think about like, think about the world of cheese and they're all made of the same ingredients. And, you know, because they involve different kinds of organisms, um, you know, you end up with all these different kinds of textures. And so, yeah, I mean, fermentation is definitely a way that people use to, you know, vary the, 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 the textures of food. And fermentation creates some, you know, really interesting textures. Personally, I've always been a lover of slimy foods. Like, I love okra. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, the, the, the texture of natto never put me off at all. You mentioned this morning, because we, at the press briefing, because we're at Abergavenny, you mentioned as a myth-busting thing that you keep having to tell people, no, this is driving me crazy. Bacteria is not a scary thing. So that's a myth that you wanted to bust, that it's not as, as you know, we came from bacteria. <laughs> we are bacteria. What, what is, do you have any other myths that you would bust in order to make fermenting at home a little bit more accessible to someone who goes i just i can't deal with things that i don't understand well i mean sure i, I mean i think that I mean, part of the problem for, for those of us who were, you know, raised in the midst of the war on bacteria and, um, um, you know, taught that bacteria are, um, you know, generally dangerous to us, um, you know, people project a lot of anxiety onto fermentation. And I would say the most frequent question that I've fielded through the years is, you know, how can I be sure that I have good bacteria growing in my jar of vegetables that's fermenting and not some dangerous bacteria that might make somebody sick uh, or ki or kill somebody and you know what, what 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 people often don't understand is that you know throughout history this is this has been a strategy for for safety you know if sauerkraut was safe to eat 90% of the time and then made people sick 10% of the time 
like this never would have survived as a um, uh, uh, as 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 an important food tradition in such a huge swath of, of of the world and like virtually all fermentation traditions really at some level are, are strategies for for safety and you know we only knew about bacteria um, you know we've only had the ability to distinguish between different kinds of bacteria for like 150 years and people have been fermenting for something like 10,000 years mm. and so you know you don't need to know anything about bacteria in order in order to ferment you just need to understand you know ju just like you know for cooking things you need to understand like oh you cook it on this side until it starts to get golden brown and if you leave it too long cooking on this side it'll burn um, mm. and if you don't flip it over it'll be raw on the other side I mean you know we just we learn certain things about cooking it doesn't mean that we know the biochemistry of caramelization um, you know it just means that you know like our parents showed us how to do something we learned how to do it we get comfortable with it you know um, um, fermentation is, is like that I mean no one until the time of Louis Pasteur understood about the bacteria but um, you know lots of you know families um, um, you know across Eurasia um, particularly in the northern tier you know had traditions like this and they just yeah. learned like okay I got to get the vegetables juicy in order to get them submerged under their own juices um, I want to store it in a cool place uh, you know, I'll, I'll eat it at intervals through the winter. I want to make sure it lasts for the winter. And, you know, it's like we don't need to know about the... We don't need to know about the microbiology. It's um, almost like we have too much knowledge and that's what's giving us the fear. Because you're right, you know, that your job title, as we said, is revivalist. You're bringing something back, something that has been around for forever. And it, uh, it's something similar to that we were talking to B. Wilson this morning about... The, just the fact that we are so scared of everything now because we have too much information at our fingertips. You know, if it, if it smells bad, don't eat it, essentially. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't really a question. <laughs> it was just a point. <laughs> Should we talk about fermenting at home? We kind of just started on that. Yeah. So, so where to want... start? Where to start on fermenting at home? I yeah. assume the first step would be to get wild fermentation. I mean, Perhaps. sure. I mean, I love if people get wild fermentation, but, you know, you really can... I mean, I, I can tell you, I'm, I'm going to tell you in, you know, the 30-second the version of, of how you do it. You can just, like, you you, you know, you can just listen to this and <clears throat> then go to the fridge and get some vegetables uh, out and do it. You can look on the internet and find all kinds of information. So, I mean, by all means, get my books. But, you know, um, uh, if you can't find my book right away, don't let that be the reason that you um, uh, 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 don't do it. Um, I mean, generally, I, start, I, I recommend that people start with fermenting vegetables because it's extremely extremely easy and straightforward um you know there's no case history anywhere in the world of illness or um uh food poisoning or or any kind of safety problems with it you know you can enjoy, you don't have to wait it's not like making miso where you have to wait for most of a year to make it you can wait for um you know you could start eating it after four or five days it'll get more and more delicious if you let more time uh, uh pass it's very versatile um uh it's supportive of good health um uh, so i I think it's a perfect place to start and particularly just because it's like so intrinsically safe. I think, you know, for anyone who's bringing any anxiety to it, you know, fermenting vegetables is absolutely where, where I'd recommend starting. And then, you know, then there's lots of, lots of, um, uh, directions you can go from there. So, I mean, 
this is how easy fermenting vegetables is. You chop up the vegetables, create surface area. It can be finely shredded. It can be coarsely shredded. It can be a mix. It doesn't matter. Often people, you do cabbage, but you really could do, you know, you could do carrots. You can do uh, um, celery or celery root. You could do turnips. I mean, any kind of vegetable or, or any kind of combination of, 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 of vegetables. Then you salt them. Um... I don't like to measure the salt. There's no necessity to measure the salt. Salt to taste. I like to lightly salt the vegetables as I'm shredding them and then mix them all up and taste them. It's always easier to add salt than to remove salt. So, you know, I would recommend undersalting. Uh, <clears throat> you can season it any way you like. Um, some classic seasonings might be uh, caraway seeds, juniper berries. In Russia, sometimes people like to use uh, uh, crab apples or and or cranberries. Uh, uh, kimchi often has chili pepper and uh, garlic and ginger and sometimes shallots or leeks or, or onions. Um, you can also do unconventional uh, experimental seasonings. I've had great curry krauts. Um, I've had uh, uh, cumin krauts. Um, uh, I've had vanilla kraut. I mean, you can put whatever oh, kind of okay. seasoning you like in it. You can add other things like seaweed or um, mm. uh, mung bean sprouts. You can add cooked things. Um, um, I met a woman whose uh, grandmother was from a town in Poland where they um, they add mashed potatoes to their sauerkraut. Wow. Um, there's okay. some there's some Asian traditions where people will add sticky rice or other styles of rice to it. So you can add cooked things to it. Always cool them down to body temperature before you before you introduce them. Uh, in the Korean tradition, often um, uh, little uh, uh, you know dried salted shrimp are added, or um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, fish sauce. So I mean it's very versatile. Some people put f um, uh, um, uh, fruit in. Uh, today at the demonstration here, we, we made a kimchi with pear in it. Um, so, I mean, it's an extremely versatile process. Um, what I generally like to do is, after I salt the veggies, get in there with my hands and squeeze. Um, um, what this does is it breaks down cell walls and helps release juice. And the most important condition is getting the vegetables juicy so they can be submerged under their own juices. Um, if the veggies are old, uh, they might not be as juicy anymore, especially if they've been in like a, you know, refrigeration for any length of time. So the most important thing is that they be submerged. If they don't seem like they're getting juicy, you add a little bit of water, add a little bit of vegetable juice, add a little bit of fruit juice, add a little bit of beer or wine, um, just some sort of liquid so you can get them submerged. And then you pack them into a vessel. A jar is a great uh, uh, small-scale home vessel. Ceramic crocks work well. Uh, wooden barrels work well. Um, Food-grade plastic is functional. Stay away from metal because metal uh, uh, can react with the salt and or the acids. Uh, and then it's just a matter of waiting and, you know, it could be, it could be a couple of days. It could be a couple of weeks. It could potentially be a couple of months. Although if you want it to be a couple of months, you probably want to have a cool spot. So the fermentation is slower. The, you know, the rate of fermentation depends a little bit on the temperature and it's faster. The warmer it is, the slower, the cooler it is. Um, and then you just wait and you taste it and the acids accumulate over time. So, um, you know, you might like a milder kraut. 
that's fermented a shorter period of time. You might like a stronger kraut that's fermented a longer period of time, but you'll only know that if you try it uh, uh, at intervals as it's fermenting. So it really is about experimentation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I love some of those combinations that you that you gave. Um, the curry kraut sounds awesome. Yeah. Oh my god, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So hopefully everybody listening to that. Pen. So didn't, it's super realize. easy. I have a I have a website wildfermentation.com. Um, you know, I have I have a written version of more or less what I just said uh, on, on my website as well as uh, uh, in in my books. And we'll put a link to that on the on the show notes, um, and a link to where people can buy the books as well. I want to know what your favorite thing is to ferment. So you're at home. You've got a free afternoon. What would be your favorite thing to make? Well, the thing is, it just completely depends on the season. So, you know, mostly I'm fermenting out of my garden. So, you know, this past summer, um, uh, well, first let me say that in the spring, a friend of mine brought over all of these rampsons. Um, uh, are you familiar with them? They're like, it's like a wild garlic it's kind wild of a thing. Garlic, right, we, yeah. uh, in, in the U.S., we call it ramps. I've heard it called ramps, ramps yeah. here. Yeah. Um, but, um, th- that was one of the most delicious things I've ever fermented. I mean, it was just ramps. Uh, uh, I chopped up the, the, I, I cleaned them. I chopped them up. I salted them. I got them juicy, stuffed them in a, in, in, in a ceramic crock. Um, they're all gone now. It was lovely while it lasted. Such like depth of flavor. It was. It was just so so uh, uh, wonderfully delicious. Um, over the summer, um, I made lots of cucumber pickles, which uh, which 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 I love. I ferment okra. I ferment string beans. Sometimes I'll make like a fermented uh, a tomato salsa. Mm. Um, uh, and now moving into the moving into the autumn is the time when I do like larger scale fermentation as it's getting cooler. Mm. Um, so I have lots of uh, uh, daikon radishes, mulis, um, mm. and um, um, you know I love fermenting radishes. I love fermenting turnips. I love fermenting cabbages. Um, you know, but I, I also like styles of fermentation that that aren't just fermenting vegetables. Uh, you know, I'm 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 a lover of cheese. I, like I love the variety of cheese that exists uh, uh, in the world. I, I I love beer. I love uh, um, the sort of microbrewery explosion, and um, you know, sort of you know all the experimental styles of beer we're we're we're, we're seeing. Um, so I mean. You know, part part of what's appealing to me about fermentation is how uh, how varied it is. Um, I've been exploring a little bit the world of fermented tofu, which is very interesting to me. And um, we don't see much of it outside of China, but mm. like I got introduced to it in China, and now I've learned a little bit about how to make it, and I've and I've been experimenting a little bit with that. But there's, you know, in in China there's like a huge, huge, huge. Um, a uh, 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 range of different styles of fermented tofu. Um, a lot of people make it at home. It seems like every family has their own, like, distinctive way of uh, spicing it. So you, you find a lot of variation in in how they're spiced, and some of them are fermented for a pretty short time, and 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 they're they have mild flavors where you can pick up a cube of tofu and just like pop it in your mouth. And some of them can get rather extreme, and they're more like things that you would mix in as a season 
seasoning, a little bit, uh, um, uh, a little bit of the fermented tofu mixed into, you know, some rice and vegetables or meat or, or whatever to, to season it. So that's something I've been, uh, uh, really enjoying exploring. Um, but there, there's, you know, the world of fermentation is, is vast. It really is a world. And I think that's part of our problem is how do we condense this into a short conversation? Um, I do have two questions before we finish up. The first question is, what's, is there one particular item that you would love to experiment with but you haven't yet? but you just itching to have a go. Well, I would just say fish in general. You know, okay. I mean, I live hundreds of miles from, um, uh, you know, the near, the nearest coast. And I mean, I've played around a little bit with fish fermentation, but I just don't really have access to, um, a very good quality fish. And, you know, to the degree that I can find it, it's prohibitively expensive. So mm-hmm. I haven't really had a lot of, um, uh, experience, uh, 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 playing with fish fermentation, but like, you know, sushi, like, would you would you eat sushi at a sushi restaurant that didn't have a refrigerator? I mean, before refrigeration, sushi was a strategy for fermenting fish in rice. And I, I in Japan, I got to try some um, fermented styles of sushi, but that's something I'd love to play around with uh, 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 more. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, just in general, like you know, the the the, the fermentation of fish is something um, you know I'd love to. Um, uh, uh, do more of so and this is another one of those pick one thing uh, the country that you've been to that has the most interesting fermentation culture or traditions China China I mean just because it's so varied uh, well I mean I'll, like I, I mean really um, I mean China has the most most uh, 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 varied and an- and ancient fermentation traditions as far as I can tell or at least they've been documented uh, uh, going back thousands of years um, you know the the the, the the oldest pottery shards that have been found with uh, residue of alcohol come from China. Um, um, every historical account I've ever read of sauerkraut leads to China. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, China just has incredibly, and, and there's even cheese in China. Like we have this idea that like, there's no cheese in China, but there, there is cheese in China and there's traditional cheese in China. I'm not, not in all of China. It's, it's very regionalized, but, um, uh, so I, I mean, I really just got a glimpse of Chinese fermentation traditions in a, in a two week, uh, trip there. But I, I look forward to going back to China and spending more time and, 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 and learning more. Um, you know, I, I mean, lots of places. I'm, I'm very interested in um, uh, uh, going to West Africa. There's a there's a there's a very interesting group of condiments all all around West Africa with a lot of different names. Sumbala is the Senegalese name. Dawa Dawa is a Nigerian name, and um, uh, you know they're they're all from um, um, legumes, generally tree legumes. Um, um, and I, I've eaten some of them in there, you know, they're, they're, they're fermented, then they're dried and sometimes pulverized. And I've had the dried and pulverized versions of them as a, as a seasoning, but I'm very interested in learning more about, about how they're, uh, 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 produced. Um, I mean, Eastern Europe has incredible fermentation traditions. I've had lots of, uh, uh, uh interesting times in, in, in Poland, um, uh, uh learning about fermentation. Mm. 
But I mean, fermentation is everywhere. I mean, sometimes people have the idea that like, you know, I mean, just because sauerkraut and, and kimchi are, you know, have, have not been as historically important, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Britain, but, um, um, you know, obviously, you know, cheese and bread and vinegar and beer. I mean, so, you know, there's prominent, uh, uh, fermentation traditions, uh, uh, here as, uh, as in almost everywhere. But, but I think China, you know, China to me has the most sort of like interesting broad range of, of fermentation traditions that I'd love to be able to learn more about. Kind of sounds like you have a very, very long fermentation adventure. <laughs> well, I mean, it turns out that it's really a, it's, 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 it's a nearly infinite realm of human cultural experience and, um, both kinds. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, if I, if I, if I stay obsessed with this, I, I, I mean, I, I expect that I will, you know, sort of, um, you know, die wishing that there were some other ferments I'd gotten a chance to try. <laughs> On that note, I think we could probably talk to you about this all day, but we've run out of time as, as always, always happens. So thank you so much for joining us in our little camper van and sharing some of your fermentation food story with us i'm well and truly inspired to get in my kitchen and uh yeah try and do a bit more than kimchi and kombucha so yeah thank you okay my pleasure thank you so much for having me if you enjoyed this episode you'll no doubt like some of our others so please do take the time to listen to our back catalog which you can find on any podcast platform you use or our website at thesource.com if you really enjoyed it, consider supporting us through Patreon. In return for helping us make the podcast even better, we're offering special behind-the-scenes recordings and more. Take a look at patreon.com slash at the source for more information. Lastly, we're on Twitter and Instagram as at the source. We're sharing visuals and talking food. Come and join us. <laughs>